At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Uh, we're going to have Ben Davidson. Ben's the founder of Davidson Law Group. He's a former colleague of mine at Harry and Simon, um, a, a firm that has since gone to the pasture lands. But um, Ben's going to be talking with us about a very important subject, and that is um, patent trolls. Um, before we jump to Ben, a, a few shout-outs. Um, today is the birthday of not only Martin Luther King, but Wikipedia. And, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder wrote a song, Happy Birthday, Martin Luther King. Um, challenge to our listeners, come up with a song for Wikipedia. If you do, we'll get you on the air. Um, but um, without further ado, we have Ben Davidson, who is a, a, a patent litigator and a former patent examiner himself. Um, for more information about Ben's background, you can check out our um, blog on this uh, at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's exciting to be on the show after years. I've known you for so many years, uh, working together for so long and uh, working on cases together, and now I get to actually be on your show, so thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. If your name, if your last name was Ghazi, it would be impossible to book you because you'd be on Fox every day. But um, <laughs> moving along, um, you know, right now there's a lot of discussion about patent trolls. And in fact, in the last week, there's been all these major stories breaking out on this topic. And um, you know, what exactly, for those who are unfamiliar with the issue, what exactly is a patent troll? Well, uh, there, are, there are many different definitions, but uh, the, the one that's accepted by most people is a company that doesn't make anything and doesn't use its patent for anything other than to file lawsuits against companies that do make things. Uh, that's, that's the most accepted definition. Uh, there, the reason there's some ambiguity is that there are companies that uh, do have actual business other than litigation, but that also use their patents to generate licensing revenues in areas where they're no longer active or maybe have never been active. And uh, some people uh, refer to that kind of litigation as troll litigation as well. Okay. Now, um, you know, it's become a problem because actually you know, the White House made an announcement um, that the, they were going to go on the offensive against patent trolls earlier this year. And the number of lawsuits brought by patent trolls has tripled and now accounts for 62% of all patent suits in America. Um, 
All told, the victims of patent trolls paid $29 billion in 2011, a 400% increase from 2005, not to mention tens of billions of dollars in lost shareholder value. So um, let's talk a little bit about the nature of sh- uh, patent litigation. And why is it so expensive? Well, uh, patent litigation tends to be expensive because it involves technology. I mean, not all patent litigation is as expensive as people imagine. If you have a simple case where you have a patent on a chair or on some kind of a mechanical device like a toy, you may not need uh, anyone to explain technology to the judge or the jury. And it may be a very simple patent, maybe a few drawings, a few pages of text, and a, a simple issue for either a judge or a jury to decide. But the problem is, especially when we're talking about software patent litigation, uh, you, you do tend to need an expert. And just the fact that you need an expert, need to hire an expert to spend time and do his or her own work, well, that takes money and time. Um, the other problem you have in really all litigation, uh, but especially patent litigation, is if, if you are being sued by a, uh, a troll, and I guess I prefer to call these companies non-practicing entities, because they're, they're not practicing their inventions. They're not doing anything other than litigation. Uh, they don't really have a huge burden on themselves for producing documents, for um, engaging in, in what's called discovery in litigation. They may have a, a, a few boxes of documents that, that are generated when somebody came up with the patent. Uh, maybe a few people have to go through depositions. But uh, by filing a lawsuit, they are entitled to take discovery of defendants on, on really what the defendants are doing with the, the system that's been accused of infringement. That can be a very, very burdensome, very, very expensive process. Even just the fact that a company has been accused of infringement, even before getting sued, uh, you have certain obligations in civil discovery. You, you, you have obligations to maintain your documents so they don't get uh, erased, deleted, destroyed intentionally or otherwise. And just the, just, the, just the obligation to preserve documents imposes certain costs on companies that are used to having these auto-delete features so that they don't have documents getting cluttered up electronically, old versions of things that they're no longer using. Uh, they sometimes have to be scanned and saved because somebody has, has sent you a letter saying, uh, we think you're infringing our patent. So there are, there are these challenges that uh, really the public has become aware of where, when you're accused of infringing a software patent uh, that even if you're not infringing, uh, you may well be in for some expense unless you can figure out a creative way to avoid it. Now, so basically, it sounds like what you're saying is maybe what what drives it is, well, one, litigation is expensive, period, regardless of the topic. Two, um, the more complex it gets, the more expensive it gets because you know the, the issues are more involved, discovery is going to be more involved. And then three, once you start talking about experts – now you're almost talking like two like you have two litigations going on at the same time. There's a parallel track. You know, you have the actual factual elements of the case, but then you also have 
um, this whole parallel um, expert case. And um, one one side is you know dealing with you know what are the facts of um, the case, and the other side is dealing with okay, um, assuming certain facts, you know, is is this a patent, a valid patent or not? And so it seems like all of those factors drive it up. I'm looking at a study done um, by Price Waterhouse, and um, in terms of some of the costs, but even also in terms of damages. Um, the annual median damages awards range from 1.9 million to 16.5 million. So, I mean, you know, regardless of how much you spend on the cost, you know, the the damages amount is expensive too. That's that's right. I mean, it, it, um, it really it depends on each case, of course. You know, if the company isn't really generating any revenue uh, using some. Uh, some patented feature of their system. It, there are ways of showing that, proving that, and and even getting a court to prevent an issue from getting to the jury on on damages that would be uh, devastating to the company. And and the courts are doing a much much better job now in trying to at least provide rules so that if a case really is only worth two hundred thousand dollars, everybody knows it at the beginning of the case and doesn't spend $400,000 trying to get there. Right. Um, but, but uh, you know, juries do, do think that patents are a valuable thing to have. And, and you know, despite every, every uh, negative feeling that people have about the government in, 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 in any number of ways, you know, historically... When you you, you uh, ask citizens to be on a jury, whatever they may think of the post office or 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 you know the DMV or now this you know the, this example of the, the George Washington Bridge being shut down, whatever they think of government being inefficient or or corrupt in some ways, juries tend to think that a patent is valuable. And so if you show that a company knew about a patent, used the patent, and made profits, juries are not uh, as forgiving as most corporations would like them to be when when the, the argument is, well, we didn't make that much money or th- these are reasons we, we really made money and the patent wasn't that important to us. Uh, and so, and, and, go ahead, I'm sorry. And so basically, what the, you know, given it, it costs a lot. And so that gives the patent trolls leverage because if I get something from a patent troll and you know, before I even call it or even during our first conversation, I'm going to either know or learn that um, the average cost of patent litigation in general is anywhere from you know, 500000 to $5 million or more um, just in litigation costs depending on how complex it gets. And you're looking at that and you're looking at the demands they're making which usually are significantly less. Right, right. I, I mean, it's a it's a game played by plaintiffs in all kinds of litigation. But in the in the patent context, it's it's true that uh, the costs can be enormous. And if if uh, if a plaintiff is uh, is well funded and is willing to spend money to uh, to make the defendant spend money. Um, a lot of times, it makes a lot of sense for for companies to settle. And even though nobody wants 
nobody wants if if you think the claim is has no merit um nobody wants to pay uh, a ransom basically to be left alone um but uh that's what happens many many times and uh you know not and not just for not just for small companies for fortune 100 companies where somebody has to make a business decision okay do we want to spend $100,000 to be able to explain to this judge why this case has no merit and hopefully get out of it quickly uh or do we want to spend $50,000 $60,000 to settle it today without having to pay our lawyers any money other than the money it takes to sign a, a settlement agreement and unfortunately that is the way a lot of uh non-practicing entities operate and successfully because all you have to do is uh just have a string of dozens of companies that you pursue in that way and uh and it's it's a business model now um it- one example that often comes up, in fact, one of the leading examples of what is a patent troll that comes up is a company called MPHJ Technology Investments, which has the astounding patent for scanning documents into an email. And right. you know, they've been sending out notices um, all across the country, but recently, um, just yesterday, in fact, the New York Attorney General not announced a settlement with them in which they would no longer um, pay, you know, send such notices to um, New York businesses, and they would refund to the state all um, licensing fees collected because of their notices. Um, What is it about this company that has people so riled up? Well, I I believe it started with a a piece uh, on on NPR. I think that's where they were highlighted, along with other stories on patent trolls. It's just that it, this is something that people can get their uh, their arms around. This is such a simple idea, and the and the, the, the thought that somebody was actually given a patent on it. It just seems absurd to. To, 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 to people, you don't need to have a science background to understand this is something that shouldn't be patentable, and yet somebody uh, claims a patent on it. Um, so yeah, I wasn't aware of this, of this settlement, but that sounds like a, a, a good development for people who've had to, uh, to pay uh, license fees. And that, that's really one of the problems. You know, we talk about abuses of the patent system. If a company is, is suing a retailer, if a company is suing you know, a, a, a corner pharmacy or a, or a restaurant or a mom-and-pop store uh, for technology that, 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 that these little stores bought from a much, much bigger vendor, it's just inherently it's unfair. You, you, you just know that these small companies don't have the resources to even investigate your claim. And, you know, that's a very, very... Uh, Bad practice that's currently that's currently allowed um, because if you're infringing, it doesn't matter if you're big or small. The law doesn't give you um, an excuse for infringing based on the size of your company. But it just it's one of the things that people really frown on and gets judges mad when you're suing an end user instead of the vendor, instead of the company that that wrote the software, that delivered the hardware. You know, companies that actually know what their systems do and have the money to fight litigation. Now, now one thing that's happening also is that 
we're seeing efforts to reform the process to enable courts to better manage in response to the trolls. So, for example, um, earlier this year, Vermont became the first um, state to actually have um, patent troll legislation and in which they uh, the new law enables courts to require bad faith patent plaintiffs to post a bond to cover litigation costs and permit a private right of action for bad faith demand letters asserting patent infringement up to $50,000. And um, President Obama directed the FTC to investigate the issue and in fact, apparently they were making good progress, and they were investigating uh, this MBTJ um, company. And um, I guess they were getting too close. Um, MPHJ, they were getting too close for their for comfort level, and MPHJ sued um, the FTC and um, its commissioners and uh, um, Jessica Rich, the director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, um, sued them in Texas, um, claiming that. They were um, violating MPHJ's constitutional rights in contradiction to applicable federal law, in particular federal patent law. Um, an unusual move, maybe may a desperate move. Well, um, yeah, I'm not that surprised that 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 there's that they're uh, going on the offense and making their their arguments. Um, in uh, district court, I mean, in Waco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think judges are sympathetic to 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 companies that have patents bringing a lawsuit on them. I mean, you know, you could, you really can look at this this problem through a whole different uh, perspective. And you know, it's it's not easy to do if you're if you're a company that's been harassed by a. a, a a patent owner um, for essentially a shakedown settlement, especially when it's a patent uh, like the scanner uh, patent that that just doesn't make any sense why it it should have ever been uh, been granted as a as a patent. The way that uh, the way that they look at it is they've been given a a property right by the government. The government said this is your patent; you have exclusive rights to it, and. Uh, and the and, and the law right now is that and has been for years and years. Patents are presumed valid. It's one of the reasons it's so hard to invalidate them in in district court litigation. So they're all they're saying, look, we're just asking the government to uh, enforce our our right uh, that's that's granted to us by the federal government. And why why are why are we for for asserting that right um, being sued by state? Uh, by state governments and and, and prosecuted, um, and you know, so there's a there there is a constitutional issue there. But I I think that the intent of some of the reformers is when you when you know as the patent owner that your claim doesn't have any merit when it's bad faith right. uh, assertion or when you know the patent is invalid um, that there that you you're no longer protected by by this this um, Argument that it, well, it's just a constitutional protected activity, um, but uh, it'll be interesting uh, to, to follow that 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 litigation. Now, in, in another big development, there have been two big developments really in the last six weeks um, on this issue. The first being Congress passed, well, at least excuse me, the House of Representatives passing patent reform legislation that would allow um, and rein in some of the trolls. Uh, what can you tell us about that? 
Well, uh, the House did, in fact, pass a pretty comprehensive bill uh, just last month uh, uh, that was sponsored by Congressman Goodlatte uh, from uh, Virginia. And uh, the, the Goodlatte bill has a number of uh, uh, features that that uh, could have a, a big impact on um, non-practicing entity or patent troll litigation. Uh, one of them is that when you when you do file a complaint, uh, you have to identify uh, how it is that you believe the defendant infringes. Right now, uh, all that's really required uh, when you sue someone is is notice pleading, which is to say, you know, more I or have less. A patent and it's infringed. I have a patent and you infringe it, and for many years that's just been the standard uh, and the defendant gets that complaint and doesn't really know what to do with it uh, many times you have to go to your all your engineers and software programmers and vendors and say you know can you please help me out I don't understand what this complaints about that's one of the that's one of the reforms that's likely it's passed Congress likely I mean passed the House of Representatives likely to pass the Senate likely to become law um, and 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 would basically give you uh, at least more leverage earlier in the case to understand if the if the claim against you has any merit at all. Um, another uh, uh, part of the reforms, which I think would be very very helpful uh, to to small companies and big companies, um, is if you get a demand letter from from uh, a patent owner. Um, and it doesn't identify how it is that they believe you are you are infringing, you would uh, essentially be able to ignore it without having any any consequences. So, uh, for, for example, if you uh, currently, it's, it's debatable. What happens if, if a company says, uh, dear sir, uh, please be advised that we own the following six patents and we believe they may be of interest to you. Right. Well, what do you have to do? Do you have to go out and spend tens of thousands, maybe more, to understand how those patents could possibly apply to you. Right. Uh, and the, the problem is in, in, in the, 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 the current, current rules aren't really uh, clear on that in, um, in the courts. And so many people do get accused of willful infringement because they got that kind of a bland notice letter and they didn't really put them on notice of anything. Right. Uh, and the, and the, the, the intent of that law is to, is to uh, avoid that kind of sort of um, draconian sanction for, for ignoring um, a letter like that, which doesn't specify how somebody believes you, you're using their patent. Well, there are other gonna, provisions as well. But, uh, we're going to put our listeners um, on a notice that we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll be talking about patent trolls and e-associate. Um, next on um, Cyber Law and Business Report after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. 
I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. I'm John Ball, and I'm one of the founders of Page One Power. Page One Power is a custom link building firm based in Boise, Idaho. We increase search rankings and web traffic for world-class brands and mom-and-pop shops all around the globe. Our link building strategies work because we focus on relevancy and quality, and we don't outsource anything. Our in-house staff of professional writers and researchers is the best in the industry. We're the link builders you've been looking for. Visit us today at pageonepower.com. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Time to saddle up with the Search Cowboys. The Search Cowboys will round up search engine marketing, social media, and more. Search Cowboys. On demand anytime inside the International Marketing Channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on webmasterradio.fm. Welcome back, Dennis Kelly with the Internet Law Center, and we're talking to Ben Davidson, um, and on the topic of patent trolls and patent reform. Now, there's a big development this week in Washington. Uh, well, actually, last week on Friday, Supreme Court announced it was going to take up a couple of major patent cases, and one of them involves um, Nautilus and a patent that uh, basically had been called more or less um, completely gibberish by um, the, the defense attorneys. And somehow the court of Appe- the federal, um, court of federal Appeals said that um, as long as it wasn't totally incomprehensible, the patent had to be affirmed. And the Supreme Court's going to review that case, which some believe will actually provide a great relief in the area of patent trolls because – um, they, they, there's a belief that the Supreme Court may actually require um, um, more certainty in patents. And, and Ben, explain why it is that a, a vague patent can be used for pat- by patent trolls. Well, um, I, I think this this is an issue that's really dogged companies in patent litigation for years and years, and not not just uh, in in uh, patent troll litigation, but just generally. Uh, the the rule has been for uh, at least at least uh, long as I've been practicing, or at least I think it's at least eighteen years, where the rule has been from the federal circuit, the, the court in Washington that decides all cases, all appeals and patent cases, that um, 
a patent is not invalid just because it's difficult or even extremely difficult to define or understand what it is that the claims are requiring. Um, and and the, the test is we will not invalidate a patent for being indefinite uh, unless the claims are insolubly ambiguous. That means, yes, there could be differing interpretations, maybe one or two or three different ways of people that people could look at the scope of the claim. But if we can solve that riddle by looking at the patent uh, specification, by looking at what, what was said about the patent in the patent and trademark office when the inventor was trying to get the patent or or maybe by looking at expert testimony, what people understood about uh, the technology at the time. If we can figure it out, we as judges, difficult as that process might be, the patent is not invalid. And that, that's just been the rule for many years, and it, and it makes this defense of indefiniteness very, very difficult to win on as a defendant. Um, and, and it can be very frustrating uh, having defended a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, cases in, in, in patent litigation, it can be very frustrating when um, there are two or three different, completely different possible interpretations of, of a claim, and, uh, and, and uh, ultimately the judge decides it doesn't mean what either side thought it means, it means something else, and yet it's not an indefinite patent. And that's exactly what happened in Nautilus, and that may be one of the reasons that the Supreme Court decided it would be a good case uh, to resolve this question of what is the right standard for indefiniteness. Because, as, as, uh, as you know, the, the, the Nautilus case had to do with a heart rate monitor, and there was, there was a, a, a claim limitation where it said two of the electrodes had to be in a spaced relationship with each other. Right. And, and the patent what, didn't say it, right? Go ahead. Right. And so what exactly does that mean? You know, what is the relationship? Um, it doesn't tell you anything. Um, in fact, um, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in their amicus brief said, you know, imagine if we applied this to pr real property and I'm building a hotel and, you know, my deed says it's based, you know, there's this space relationship with the, with the boundary. You know, what do I do? That mean, you know, how does that apply? And that, you know, we wouldn't allow this in real property. Why do we allow it in intellectual property? Well, it you know it has been for years has has been the way that patents get written, patents get allowed, and patents get litigated, and 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 the, the disputes were settled on these kinds of uh, uh, claims that are drafted, and the, the 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 frustration I think for the defendant not only not only lo losing on that issue of indefiniteness, but losing based on a, on a definition that even the patentee wasn't um, advancing. The Federal Circuit said it means something different from what either one of you is saying. It means uh, a space relationship so that you achieve a particular function uh, of substantially removing a type of interference signal with the heart rate monitoring. And that's, that's sort of function. So essentially it said it's not indefinite because you know you have the right space relationship if, if it achieves a certain function that the patent talks about. And that function has to be so that you substantially you, 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 you have gotten rid of a certain kind of unwanted signal. Uh, and, and so that really allows the Supreme Court um, to not only talk about indefiniteness generally 
in claims, but this idea of functional claiming, that, you know, you're claiming things not based on what they are, but what, based on the function that they achieve. That's been a source of frustration for a lot of people, including in software patent litigation, where um, the, the claims may have no real relation to what somebody's actually doing other than they're both doing, they're both achieving a certain function. Um, so, but I'll tell you, as a patent lawyer, as much as it's, it's good to see tests being clarified and being um, uh, fine-tuned in, in the appellate process, one of the, one of the challenges is that there are no patent lawyers on the Supreme Court. And, you know, a lot of people maybe think that's a good thing because uh, <laughs> maybe the patent lawyers, and there are, there are a number of patent lawyers on the federal circuit, maybe the patent lawyers haven't done such a great job from, from some people's view in clarifying what these tests are. But, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't always know what the effects are of its, of its new rules on, on the rest of the patent system. You can't have a system that says the patent claims must be absolutely crystal clear beyond any question to everyone who looks at it. Because if you did, then you know hardly any patents would be worth anything. You know, you just basically have a patent on exactly the the machine or the piece of software that you created, and there wouldn't be any any, any kind of um, uh, way to. To, to foresee other variations that would still fit within the invention that you're claiming. So it's, it's a challenge, and I just don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, although you know, the, one of the predictions is, is that if the claim drafter could have avoided the ambiguity fairly easily by just um, writing the claim uh, more clearly, then that's, go- that's going to be on the, on the patent owner. That's... that's that's going to be counted against the drafter, just like you do in, in uh, writing a contract. If you wrote a contract and you deliberately chose to use really ambiguous language, uh, you, you're not going to be given the benefit of the doubt as to what that, that term meant when you're litigating it. Now, one, one patent that's got a lot of attention in, um, in, with our listeners is the, um, the associate patent for affiliate marketing. And, uh, you know, um, there's a, a, an industry insider, um, Pace Latin, who has the, he's publisher of Performance Marketing Insider, and he wrote um, he called the patent. He said the E Associate has one purpose: to destroy as many companies, rake as much cash now before the laws change that make these type of claims bull bleep. And um, and so, with Congress having patent, well, excuse me, the House Representatives passing patent reform legislation in December. Associates actually filed two additional claim, um, lawsuits in December, almost as if it, they're trying to get in while the, the going is still available to them. Uh, what, what, have you had a chance to look at this patent? Yeah, yeah I, I'm familiar with it. Uh, uh, I've never litigated uh, one of these cases, but I, I'm aware that it's, it's, a, it's a, a company that's filed a number of cases. I think something, you know, more than 20 cases and it's 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 typical in a sense of what people complain about in terms of non-practicing entity litigation. So it looks like a lot of people have may have may have dismissed their cases through settlements and didn't get very far in litigation. 
And so um, the question is, did anyone really um, get to the bottom of whether this is a valid patent? Did anyone have the money or the incentive to do that? Um, it, it, it looks like that may not have happened because of the kinds of targets uh, um, in the e associate uh, litigations. It looks like they, by and large, are not big companies that would have been really well-funded to take the case all the way um, to a decision. I think, I think there are a couple of companies one that may, decision, maybe have them. Yeah. I think there was one decision, but it wasn't on whether or not it was a valid patent. It was just on a non-infringement decision, which is different. That, that's right. There, 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 there's a company, uh, it was called Azugal, and I think they were bought by, by Epic, uh, in the Western District of Wisconsin, which is a patent, which is a district court that's been known to move pretty quickly, um, uh, the, and the, the, the judge there decided on summary judgment, which means, you know, as, as you know, you, you, you don't get to a jury trial. Decided right. there was nothing for a jury to decide um, that uh, the associate patent requires a particular uh, kind of affiliate uh, marketing. System where where you have a virtual uh, affiliate, and you're uh, using though the merchant's tracking system to decide how much affiliate should be paid, um, but that um, uh, Epic, the defendant, wasn't doing that, wasn't uh, using the merchant's uh, tracking system, and so uh, the the case was dismissed on on summary judgment because. Epic didn't infringe. That issue is now up on appeal at the federal circuit on whether the district court judge got it right. But one of the consequences of that decision that Epic was also asking the court to invalidate the patent because eSociate uh, 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 e had a prior art system of its own that was, that was in the prior art that was available to the public to use. It wasn't patented. And the difference between the prior art system and the patent system, system um, is so slight that it's difficult for even it looks like associates sometimes to clearly explain what that difference is, and yet the, uh, that's that that uh, uh, trivial difference is the subject of so much patent litigation. But the, the judge in Wisconsin decided there's no reason to decide uh, to to uh, take up my time to decide if this is a valid patent. I'm telling you. Uh, Epic, you don't infringe the patent, and that's the end of this case. And so, um, Associate gets gets to live another day, and and it has a presumptively valid patent that it's still suing on. It, it, yes, and, but it's been widely criticized in the industry. And I, I guess the question then is, um, how much longer can they proceed if you know if there is patent reform? You know, will they still pursue such cases, knowing that they have a high risk of um, being um, sanctioned for frivolousness? And then, if the you know, Supreme Court requires some more clarity in patents, what does that do to them? Well, I wouldn't. I, I I don't know enough about the patent or the merits of any any claim that that's being brought uh, to say that a case that that a case would be frivolous. And I think you know, by and large. Uh, Companies and particularly lawyers do take their obligations very seriously. So I, 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 I wouldn't say that they haven't done a, in this case an analysis. I'm sure whoever's filing these these uh, suits has a has a, a point of view, and and uh, they're entitled to present their point of view. 
to a judge. Um, but you know, putting aside this particular case and 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 uh, the merits of, of of any claim that that may be brought, you know, in this uh, in this industry, um, I think that the patent reform um, that's being considered by um, Congress now, and it's likely to go into effect. It, it could have a major effect on companies suing uh, on their patents. There's a provision we didn't talk about, and that that's that's a provision that allows for fee shifting when a patent owner loses. You know, in in the American system, one of the one of the things we 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 uh, have that's different from the English system is you can file a lawsuit, and if you lose. Generally, you don't have to pay for the other side's uh, costs, but uh, you know, in the English system, it's a loser-pay system. If you brought a lawsuit and you lose, you generally do have to pay the other side's costs, and it's attorney's fees. Well, the the U.S. patent system is going to be moving towards a loser-pay system, um, unless a plaintiff that loses can show the judge that it was acting. Um, Reasonably, that that yeah, it lost, but its its lawsuit was reasonably justified. It's going to have to pay the other side's uh, costs and uh, and attorneys' fees, and that may well have a, a chilling effect, and maybe a good effect, on plaintiffs and companies that are filing lawsuits that they really don't think they could win, uh, if the case goes all the way to a decision by a judge or a jury. Well, um, we only got a few minutes left on, on this segment. So, Ben, if people want to learn more about you and your practice, where should they go? Uh, I am at uh, Davidson Law Group, and uh, my website is davidson-lawfirm.com. And my name is Ben Davidson. Uh, I am in West Los Angeles, and uh, I litigate throughout California and uh, throughout the courts of the U.S. in uh, patent cases. All right, Ben, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, and um, it, you know, look forward to hearing more about your exploits in the patent area. Um, but we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the D.C. Circuit's opinion on net neutrality. Is net neutrality dead? We'll talk about that. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? You need to call an exterminator. No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. There are many things we would love to catch. Catching the final out of a baseball game. And that's the ball game. Reeling that big catch of the day. Or catching a ride home. Taxi! How about catching more attention, like the biggest retail brands on earth? Introducing Catchy.com, where they sell short-branded, attractive.com domain names. Use a short and catchy brand, just like Sony, Visa, and Nike, for your next business venture. You can even rent to own for as low as $100 a month. Catch a big break for your business with Catchy.com. My name is Jim Gray, and I am a judge of the Superior Court in California. 
Did you know that since the federal government first banned marijuana in 1937, that usage in this country has gone up by about 4,000%? Or that an American is arrested on marijuana charges every 38 seconds? If you are wondering if any of this makes sense, you are not alone. To find out more, contact the Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or visit them on the web at mpp.org. Guys, are you suffering from FD, fulfillment dysfunction? Let MoldingBox.com's online portal system for inventory, tracking, and returns perform for you. We have the enormous tools you need for complete warehousing, shipping, and handling of all your packages, no matter the size or shape, directly to your customers. MoldingBox.com can also fulfill all your nourishing, nutraceutical, and smooth skincare product desires, including green coffee and Garcinia on demand. Plus, let our in-house printing and CD DVD manufacturing help you enlarge and maximize your coaching and business opportunity potential. We do everything. Fulfillment, shipping, tracking, inside and out, and all in one place. Moldingbox.com. It's shipping made sexy. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Just a quick line of trivia. The very first patent came from the state of of Vermont, um, which actually was the first state to enact patent troll legislation. And surprisingly, Vermont is also the state that has the highest per capita level of patent users. So it's a a little trivia there for you. Now, one thing that's definitely not trivial is the uh, decision yesterday and by the D.C. Circuit with respect to the FCC's open Internet rules. And... um, In that decision, the Federal Circuit um, invalidated the um, open internet rules, which are usually referred to as the net neutrality rules, um, by a vote of two to one. Um, They invalidated all of the rules except to the extent that it requires disclosure um, by carriers of um, their discriminatory practices. And so you're, you're, you're allowed to discriminate. Um, under the D.C. Circuit rule as long as you disclose it. But otherwise, the FCC was not um, – the rule is barring discrimination um, and requiring um, you know, open access um, was, uh, was invalidated. So what does that mean and, uh, and why is it important? Well, um, the whole idea of net neutrality is that um, – it, that the internet is will be neutral as to who um, can have access, and so we're not going to favor any one um, de- any one person delivery of content, um, and we're not going to discriminate against content or content providers. And um, the, the debate's been going on for several years since a, a, a Supreme Court decision you know, basically um, forced the issue, and. Um, and ever since the issue first arose, there's been this de- um, state you know, debate about whether or not any of the harms that have been feared uh, would actually occur. And they were always being dismissed as just mere hypotheticals. So um, some of the things, you know, such as blocking access or discriminatory treatment 
or erecting toll booths on the internet or having tiered service levels. You know, those were all things that were dismissed and saying, well, this is hypothetical, it hasn't happened. Well, that, that may have been true in 2006, 2007 when this issue first came up, but it's not true today. We've, we've seen examples of all of these. In fact, even during the debate, Verizon conceded in an oral argument that they would like to have tiered service levels but for the open internet order. And so what, what really was at issue, and, and the, uh, the court was clear about this from the start, that um, this is a very serious question um, and that what's at issue here. Um, is not the wisdom of the of the open internet order regulations, but rather to determine whether the commission has demonstrated that the regulations fall within the scope of its statutory grant of authority. Now, there was a prior um, internet um, net neutrality guidelines by the FCC, which weren't quite as uh, sweeping as these, uh, that were issued under um, under the Bush administration under its first FCC chairman Powell. And the, those were challenged by Com, Comcast uh, a couple of years ago, and the D.C. Circuit invalidated those, saying the FCC hadn't demonstrated it had the authority to impose any sanctions under those orders. And so the FCC had to go back to the drawing board, which was what led to the open Internet orders. Now, having had that direction from the D.C. Circuit, Basically, this was a mulligan. We knew, you know, the FCC knew what the standard was going to have to be, and and in fact, you know, basically, it went to the question of whether or not um, internet service and providers were, were treated as common carriers or not, and you know, that has certain um, obligations and certain um, requirements that that come with it, and. Um, and that was really why the order um, was invalidated because they weren't classified as common carriers. And, and so, therefore, a common carrier is someone that um, is doing something for the benefit of all, uh, even if it is a private entity. And whereas, since you're not a common carrier, you don't have to um, do things that benefit all users. You just have to you know, pursue your own interests in a, in a legal way. And the... Um, the problem here was that um, the administration knew that this is where it was going to have to go. In fact, at one point, uh, FCC Chairman Janikowski said that, was, that that is where we have to go but, and was actually toying what was called the third way. And the third way would more or less give um, common carrier status to the, you know, uh, the providers but hide a, a certain um, limitation on the scope of the common carrier status. And that was considered a, a bold move um, on Janikowski's part, which he elected not to take. Instead, after you know, negotiating with AT&T and some others, what came out of um, the FCC was somewhat of a watered-down proposal that always seemed to be a concern that it would be easily subject to challenge. And as we saw, it was. And um, so some of the reaction to the, the decision really isn't a... Cr- People aren't, aren't especially critical of the decision. What they're critical is is of the FCC's initial determination. And um, so, for example, um, Susan Crawford uh, has stated that um, it really um, the FCC um, made a mistake in how they, they did it and that it was really uh, what we need now is uh, – 
Um, we need a sense of boldness that we need to take on this issue head on, and and you know the and have the legal argument um, with the D.C. Circuit about okay, we we now reclassified it. That seems to be within our authority, and um, let's move on. Now, yes, there was going to be a huge fight over this. You know, as you may recall, the House of Representatives almost overturned the net neutrality regs um, as they're allowed to. If if both houses of Congress pass a a measure that um, overturns it, you know, uh, that v- overrides the FCC determination, you know, then um, that can uh, veto it. And so um, that is an issue uh, that that's definitely going to come up. But you know, that's coming. It almost happened last time. And there seems to be some signals from new FCC Chairman Wheeler that maybe we should wait and see um, how bad things get, <coughs> which it doesn't seem to be a, a reasonable response. We are seeing the carriers want to start in creating barriers. They want to start creating favorites on the Internet. And if we wait until that happens, you know, the, eventually you know, the, 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 the horse is out of the barn. We can't get it back. And we, you know, we, we're having these discussions about how we have this great inequality of America today. We have t- you know, a tiered educational system. We have, now have a tiered court system. Your courts are so underfunded that if you have money, you go to arbitration. You know, and now we're going to create a tiered Internet. And, and that's just not the way to go. What we do need is we need to have the boldness to address this head on. And you know, if you're th- worried about the politics of this, remember SOPA. Remember the, the great response of the Internet community uh, on that day. And so if I'm Commissioner Wheeler, what I would do is I'd recommend that he start having town halls on this issue and let um, the Internet community demonstrate the, the strength of its support for net neutrality. And then that um, would be the way to go. And you know, if you want this to be a 2014 issue, great. Because those are people that President Obama has lost over the NSA reforms. He can get them back. And so um, I think the path is let's take on this issue. That neutrality isn't dead. The question is do we have the boldness to make it alive again? And um, that's all I have for now. But um, I want to um, look forward to talking to you next week, um, probably a little bit more on this and some other um, more interesting cases. Uh, Some of them are quite amusing, actually. We may be talking about next week, but I'll, I'll share that then. Um, and so without any further ado, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great time having you. Thanks again to Ben Davison. Um, check out our blog, um, cyberlawradio.wordpress. And this is Ben and Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. And uh, don't forget to check out our web, um, our mobile app and take us with you wherever you go. Uh, we're happy to travel any place. St. Bart's is nice this time of year. And... Um, good luck to everyone this from football this weekend, and there's actually going to be upcoming. It's going to be hockey in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium, so that should be interesting. Any event, um, nice talking to you. Have a happy Martin Luther King weekend. Happy birthday to Wikipedia and Martin Luther King, and uh, we'll see you next week. This is Bennett Kelly with Cyberlong Business Report. See you next week. Course adjourned.
This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.